We invite you to turn over in your Bibles to the book of John once again. We've been looking at the I am statements that Jesus makes in this gospel. Uh, The last time I was with you on a Wednesday evening, we looked at this very passage in John 10, and specifically verse 9, where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And today I want to read to you this passage again and hear Jesus say something else marvelous about himself. John 10, verses 1 through 11. Truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Father, as we consider these words of your son this morning, we pray that we would, as true sheep do, hear his voice. And we would follow him. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This picture of a shepherd and his sheep is one of the most common metaphors in all of the Bible. We find it not only here in John 10 and, of course, in Psalm 23, which we read a few moments ago, but in many, many other places as well. Just to name a few, think about Psalm 100, where we are taught to pray, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Or Isaiah 53, we're reminded that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. In the New Testament, the word that we translate pastor is simply the Greek word for shepherd, one who pastures or pastors a flock. So that Paul commanded the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20 to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And Peter referred to the elders in the church as shepherds in 1 Peter 5, working under the authority of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Sheep and shepherds. This kind of language is all throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. And it really is a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It is soul warming, don't you find it? To think of Jesus gathering us in his arms like lambs, Isaiah 40, and carrying us in his bosom. 
It's a beautiful picture of our Lord. But the metaphor of sheep and shepherds is not actually all that flattering to us, is it? Because we are the sheep, and sheep are notoriously slow, dim-witted, gullible, aimless, easily led astray animals. Our children have all enjoyed reading a little book by a lady called Monica Wellington, and the book is entitled The Sheep Follow. And so there's a little flock of sheep grazing in the meadow, but oh look, along comes a butterfly, and the sheep follow. And then some ducks paddle by, and the sheep follow. And then a cat walks along the fence, and the sheep follow. They'll follow anything. And isn't that exactly like us? We're so distracted by so many things, and all of us, if we look at our hearts, can say amen to that. We wander away from the Lord and from the green pastures of His Word so easily, so naively, so unsuspectingly, and find ourselves who knows where. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah says. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now that is cute and even amusing when we're talking about cotton ball sheep in a children's book. But in real life, sheep who wander away from the shepherd and guardian of their souls die. Sheep who wander from their shepherd tumble unsuspectingly over steep ravines. They drink polluted waters that make them sick. They're devoured by wolves and they die. And that's the way it is with human beings. The world is filled with perils and dangers to our souls. And yet, like sheep, we often wander right into the teeth of the enemy without even realizing what we're doing. We think we're following a butterfly, but we're wandering away from the only one who can protect us. Quite a number of us, I'm sad to say, seem perhaps to have been doing just this in recent months. Quite a number of us may not be walking as closely with God as we once did. Not moving forward as individuals and as a church like we once did. And it may just seem like we're wandering safely, but wandering. But sheep who wander from their shepherd perish. We need a shepherd. We need someone to follow right at his heels and as important as human shepherds are the scriptures tell us again and again that we need a divine shepherd i need to be able to say and so do you the lord is my shepherd and here in john 10 jesus tells us that if we will listen to his voice verse 3 if we will follow at his heels verse 4 if we will trust him we will be able to say the lord is my shepherd If we follow Jesus, we're able to take David's words on our own lips. The Lord is my shepherd because Jesus says here in John 10, verse 11, that he himself is that shepherd. I am the good shepherd, he says. I am the good shepherd. Now that statement in verse 11 is filled with meaning and in a couple of different ways. First of all, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... He is once again claiming deity for himself. He is once again asserting that he himself is, in fact, God. For not only does he take God's memorial name, I am, upon his own lips, I am the good shepherd, 
but also in calling himself the shepherd, he is essentially claiming that Psalm 23 is about himself. He doesn't claim to be a shepherd. He claims to be the shepherd. As a pastor, I can say I'm a shepherd, small s, but Jesus says I am the shepherd. And that's a title reserved for God alone, isn't it? So with this brief little phrase, I am the good shepherd, Jesus is in essence saying, I am the Lord of Psalm 23. I am the God of David. I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I am the good shepherd. But this brief little phrase in the first half of John 10, 11 is significant in another way as well. Not only do Jesus words remind us that he is very God of very God, but they also remind us how, as God, he personally cares for our souls the way a shepherd cares for his sheep. Our Lord, our shepherd, is not just a great being in the sky who looks down on a far-off world as a relatively disconnected observer. The God of the Bible is not the God of Bette Midler's ironic and blasphemous hit song who is only watching us, quote, from a distance. No, the Bible says that our God is near. He's like a shepherd with his sheep. He knows his sheep by name, verse 3. He tends them carefully and personally like a shepherd with his flock. And Jesus now comes along and takes that title to himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the one who is near. I am the one who cares for the sheep. I am the ultimate pastor. And so I want us to think for the next little while about what that means. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the good shepherd? What is in back of that statement? How does Jesus shepherd his people? How does he tend his flock? What does a shepherd do for his sheep? And how in turn does Jesus do those sorts of things for us? Well, what does a shepherd do for his sheep? None of us are shepherds. And very few, if any of us, have spent much time around them. And so it's not an easy question for us to answer. But we do know someone who was a shepherd, don't we? We sort of know him anyway. I'm thinking, of course, of King David in the Old Testament. You may remember that David wasn't born into the royal family like most kings. God called David out of a common family to be king, out of a rural setting out of a country village. And when the prophet Samuel showed up at David's family home to anoint him as the next king of Israel, do you remember where David was to be found that day? Oh, said Jesse, I have one other son, the youngest one. He is out in the fields keeping watch over his flocks. So David knew a thing or two about sheep and shepherds. And also, as a man after God's own heart, he knew a thing or two about the Lord and his care for his people. And he brought those things together and said, I look at my life as a shepherd, I see how I cared for my sheep, and then I think about the Lord, and it just makes perfect sense. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23:1. That psalm colors in between the lines that Jesus sketches here in John 10, 11 with this simple phrase, I am the good shepherd. Psalm 23 explains to us what Jesus means when he calls himself the good shepherd. Psalm 23 expounds for us the kinds of things that Jesus does for us as the good shepherd. 
And so with some helpful hints from a little book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm by a man named Philip, Philip Keller. It's on the book rack in the foyer right now. With some helpful hints from Mr. Keller, what I want to do is have you turn back with me to Psalm 23 for a few moments this morning because I think that this psalm answers the question that needs answering this morning. Namely, how does Jesus care for his sheep? What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? Psalm 23, of course, does not provide an exhaustive catalog of all the kindnesses of Jesus. Remember, John said that if we were to write all the things Jesus did, the whole world wouldn't hold the books. So this is not an exhaustive list of the ways that Jesus is our shepherd, of the ways that Jesus cares for our souls. But it gives us plenty enough, I think, to fill our plates this morning and to urge us like sheep to follow at Jesus' heels wherever he leads. And so let's look at the psalm. And I want to give you a six-part answer to this question that I'm asking. What does the good shepherd do for his sheep? What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? First, David reminds us in verses 1 and 2 that our good shepherd provides his sheep with nourishment. Nourishment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet or still waters. Sheep, as you know, eat grass and clover and other various kinds of roughage. So when a shepherd seeks out and leads his sheep to green pastures, he's not doing it for beauty's sake. He's not wandering along the hillsides going, oh, isn't this a lovely spot to spend the day? No, he leads them to green pastures so that they can eat and therefore so that they can live and grow and thrive. And what David is saying is this is precisely the kind of care that the Lord provides for his people. The Lord leads his sheep to places of nourishment as well, to pastures where they may be fed the kinds of things that they eat. And what do God's sheep eat? What greener pastures are there for the flock of God than his word? That's what David's speaking of here. What better place for us to feed than in this book? After all, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word spoken from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live simply by the things that he eats physically like a sheep. He lives when he feeds on this book. So one of the things that Jesus has done for us as the good shepherd has been to provide us with the nourishment of this book. It is, in fact, the greatest tangible gift that the Lord has left with His church. The greatest gift that the Lord has given us is Himself, but we don't tangibly embrace Him yet in this world. He's with us by the Spirit. But the greatest tangible gift that He has left with His people is this book. If you lost everything else in your life but had this book, you would still have treasure. And I want you to pay careful attention to the metaphor of Psalm 23. We're not just to read this book. We are to feed on this book. The sheep feed 
They don't just go into the green pastures to look around. They go to eat, to chew, to digest. And that's what we do with the word. We don't just go to this book to read it for today and check off our list. But we go there to chew and to let it digest, to let it nourish our souls. The word of God is not merely instruction for our minds, though it is, of course, that. But it's also nourishment for our souls. Like food, it's meant to give us spiritual calories, spiritual energy that will sustain us through the day. Like food, it's meant to make us grow in spiritual stature. Like food, it's meant to satisfy our pangs for God. Do you read the Bible like that as the very food of your soul? When you open the Bible, is it as a hungry sheep being led into green pastures? Our shepherd has brought us into the lush fields of this book, the Bible, his word, and we must follow him there day by day into the green pastures and feed on this nourishment. That's the first thing the shepherd provides for sheep nourishment. But then secondly, the good shepherd, verse three, grants to his sheep restoration, restoration. Sometimes a sheep's wool will become so caked with the mud and the feces in which he's been wallowing and become so top-heavy that his legs can no longer sustain the weight and the sheep tips over onto his back and can't get up. His legs are such that he can't, like you and I, move them and turn himself over, and he's stuck. And if a sheep is left lying for very long in that position, on his back, legs prone straight up in the air, if the shepherd doesn't quickly notice the downcast sheep and run into the field and set it on its feet again, the sheep will die. And again, isn't that a compelling, startling portrait of you and I? Sin weighs heavily upon us, doesn't it? And tips us over and turns us upside down. And like sheep, we cannot right ourselves. No matter how hard we push, no matter how much we kick, no matter how loud we bleat, we cannot fix our problem. But along comes the good shepherd, verse 3, and he restores my soul. He pulls me out of the miry pit. He turns me right side up again and sets my feet on a firm place. Isn't that what Jesus did? By his sinless life. And his sacrificial death and his resurrection and his causing us to be born again to a living hope. He took overturned sheep and set them on their feet again. And doesn't he continue to do that when we go mucking around in sin? Sadly, we get turned over again and then we wallow in the mud some more and we get rolled over again sometimes. And yet Jesus comes to these spiritually top-heavy sheep who are rolled over, helpless and hurting. And he doesn't say, I did this for you three times before. What's your problem? No, he restores my soul, says David. Some of us perhaps need to hear that this morning. As I said before, some of us perhaps have been wandering for some time now. We've been wallowing In the muck of sin, we found ourselves upside down and we're not sure how we're going to get out of this problem. Not sure how we're going to get our balance back. And the solution is not to kick around any further and try to turn yourself over. The solution is to cry out again to the good shepherd who comes and restores our soul. 
And I hope some of you might do that even this morning. Our Jesus is ever ready to grant restoration. That's the second thing. Restoration. Thirdly, notice that the good shepherd gives his sheep direction. Verse 3b. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He gives us direction. And notice the kind of direction he gives. David says that the shepherd doesn't simply tell his sheep where to go. He goes ahead of them and guides them in the right paths. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to tell someone how to get there. It's another thing to say, you follow me and I'll take you exactly where you need to be. And that's what the shepherd does. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that the sheep don't have to be all that intelligent. They just have to be able to follow the paths already trodden out by the master's footsteps. And again, I say, what a picture this is of Jesus. Jesus, like a good shepherd, is not sending us down a path that he's not first gone down himself. He did not remain in heaven merely telling us how to live, but he came to earth, as Peter puts it, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He doesn't just direct us in the paths of righteousness, but he himself came into this world and took the lantern in his hand and headed down the trail himself to guide us in paths of righteousness. And I always know where to go morally and spiritually if I simply stay behind him and walk after his pattern and follow in his steps. For instance, what does it look like for me to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? What does it look like for me to love my neighbor as myself? How do I keep the Ten Commandments? What ought my prayer life to be like? How do I deal with opposition? What does it look like for me to suffer well trusting the Lord? All of these questions find answers as we read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, discerning the path that he beat through the wilderness of this world, and as we, like sheep on unfamiliar hillsides, simply stay close at his heels and follow in his steps. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. With his words, yes, but also with his example. The good shepherd gives his sheep direction. Number three, notice fourthly, though, that the good shepherd also cares for his sheep by way of protection. Protection. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In order to get to the table land of verse five. In order to get to the high plateaus where the green grass sways in the breeze, shepherds sometimes have to lead their sheep through deep, dark valleys on the way. Through dangerous places. Places that provide plenty of cover for prowling wolves or coyotes. But as long as the shepherd is there, wielding his staff and his rod, the sheep know that they're safe. Though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they don't fear any evil because the shepherd is with them. They know that he will protect them. And again, this is a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? Our shepherd doesn't lead us into deep valleys or dangerous places just for the sake of it, but he does sometimes do so in order to get us to places of health and nourishment, lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. He does sometimes take us into difficult circumstances 
And some of you may even be there right now. But if you are there, or when you get there, you will not be alone if the Lord is your shepherd. For, David says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know that the Lord is with me, David says. He won't leave me or forsake me. He won't allow the roaring lion to devour me. He will use his rod and his staff to beat him away. And that is true in our lives, whether we realize it's happening or not. There are no telling how many times in your life that the Lord has beaten back the devil and his angels without you even realizing how much danger you were in. So trust him. Cry out to him when you're in trouble or distress or discouragement. Remember his rod and his staff and trust him. The good shepherd always grants to his sheep, fourthly, his protection. Then fifthly, the good shepherd also grants to his sheep his comfort. In the second half of verse 5, you have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Comfort. Now we know that David was anointed with oil that day when Samuel came to Bethlehem to make him king. But there may be a double meaning here. David may be speaking of the anointing oil again in connection with a shepherd and his sheep. So what is oil to do with sheep and with shepherds? Well, Philip Keller, the man I mentioned who wrote the book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, was himself a shepherd and a believer in Christ. And he reminds us that sheep are often plagued by insects. They crawl into the sheep's warm, moist noses, and they lay eggs inside the nasal cavities and the larvae hatch and begin crawling around inside their sinuses and the sheep are driven to absolute distraction, so badly irritated that they will literally beat their heads against a wall to get relief. And so a good shepherd, Keller says, creates a kind of anti-insect home remedy. The main ingredient of which home remedy is oil, verse 5. And he pours the oil over the sheep's head to keep the flies away. You anoint my head with oil. For a shepherd to do this is a ministry of comfort. And again, what a lovely mosaic this helps us piece together of the ministry of the Lord, our shepherd. Sometimes the word of the Lord is like green grass. Nourishing our souls. Sometimes the word of the Lord is like a hammer, smashing the rock hardness of our hearts. Sometimes the word of the Lord is like a fire, welling up in our bones and compelling us to speak it to others. Sometimes the word of the Lord is like a sword, beating back the enemy's lies. And sometimes, when we're miserable and distracted, And banging our heads against the wall, the word of the Lord is like a shepherd's anointing oil, ministering comfort to our souls. Haven't you found the Lord sometimes anointing your head in just this way? You're distracted, you're frustrated, you're irritated, you're hurting, but nevertheless, you discipline yourself to read God's word anyway, 
even though you don't feel like it. Or you discipline yourself to come and hear it preached even though you'd rather just lie in your bed and mope. And how often when you do that does the Lord meet you there in His Word with just the right medicine from the chest? You might not expect that He's going to meet you. You may have no idea what particular balm you need. You may arrive at the book or at the church service still distracted and irritated, but you turn anyway to the assigned passage, whatever is next in the list that you're reading through, and whether you expect it or not, suddenly the Lord pours out just the right oil and soothes your soul and brings you comfort. The Lord, the Good Shepherd, comforts His sheep. And then in the sixth place, the Good Shepherd leads His people also into rest. Rest. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When the feeding is done, when the trekking over hill and dale is complete, when the valleys have been conquered and the hilltops have been summited and the sun begins to set, the shepherd leads his sheep back to their home, across the river, back to the shepherd's farm and into their rest. And so it will be with all who follow the good shepherd. When all the valleys have been crossed, when all the sermons have been heard, when we have followed the shepherd's path for long enough in this world, he leads us up the final hill, difficulty, and over the last raging river of death and into Emmanuel's land where glory dwells and where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as the author of Hebrews puts it, we who have believed enter that rest. So then, what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? Well, among other things, it means nourishment. It means restoration. It means direction, protection, comfort, and finally rest. All of these ministries and more lie in back of this simple statement now back in John chapter 10, verse 11. This is what Jesus means when he calls himself the good shepherd. I lead my people to green pastures and feed their souls. I restore their souls when they're cast down. I have given them an example that they might follow in my steps and be led in paths of righteousness. I go with them, defending them with my rod and my staff when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I anoint their heads with healing balm whenever they're distressed and undone. And I will someday lead them over that last river and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We could spend an entire sermon on each one of those blessings and still not have even begun to fully plumb the depths of Jesus' care for his own. But instead, I give them all to you briefly so that you might have a more comprehensive look of the manifold ways in which the good shepherd cares for his sheep. It's a marvelous thing, is it not? The care of Jesus for his people. He's doing it whether we realize He's doing it or not. He's doing it even when we are wandering astray. He's doing it when we're listening to a thousand other things but His voice. Still, He's caring for us. And how much more will we enjoy Him if we will pay attention to that care? If we will follow close at His heels and stay always within arm's reach of Him? 
We've only begun to scratch the surface this morning of what Jesus means when he says, I am the good shepherd. And I hope that you will pursue it further as you walk close to him. But as you turn back to John 10, there's one more thing to notice about the ministry of the good shepherd. And it's stated plainly there in the latter half of verse 11. Namely, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now the picture, of course, on the first level anyway, is of a shepherd on the hills standing between his flock and an oncoming wolf or mountain lion or thief. A good shepherd, Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, won't flee in that situation. He won't trade the lives of his sheep for his own personal safety. But he will run out and he'll meet the danger head on and he will fight tooth and nail to protect his sheep even unto death. That's how much a shepherd loves his sheep. And that's how much Jesus says he loves his people unto death. There is a thief, verse 10, who seeks to steal and kill and destroy us, is there not? And if it took his own death for Jesus to beat back the thief's advances, he would do it, he says in verse 11, and he did. Through death, the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, the thief in verse 10. Now be careful here. The devil did not kill Jesus the way a wolf might kill a shepherd on the hillsides. Jesus died, he tells us here in John 10, 18, of his own initiative. So the cross wasn't Jesus' battle with the devil in which he was unfortunately and tragically killed trying to protect his sheep. The analogy of verses 10 and 11, in other words, only goes so far. It's not meant to give us every detail of why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die accidentally because the devil won him over, nor did Jesus give himself over as a payment to the devil so that the devil might somehow leave us alone. But the fact is that when Jesus died, of his own volition... In obedience to his father, his death somehow cut the legs out from under the thief, the wolf, the roaring lion who seeks to devour God's sheep. And if you will stay near the shepherd, then the devil will have no power over you. Through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Stay near the shepherd and the devil will leave you alone. Hidden in the hollow of his hand. Remember we sung? Never foe can follow, never traitor stand. The devil cannot destroy you if you stay with the shepherd. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil because the shepherd is with you. His rod and his staff comfort you. And his cross where he defeated the work of the devil for once and for all comforts you. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But I want to remind you before we leave this point of Jesus laying down his life for the sheep that we have a bigger problem than just the devil, a much bigger problem. 
Jesus said elsewhere that we shouldn't be afraid of the devil who can only kill the body. But he said, I'll tell you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after killing the body, can destroy the soul in hell. And that's not the devil. The devil does not have the key of Hades. The one who has the key, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, is the maker of heaven and earth against whom we have sinned. Don't fear the devil, Jesus says. Fear God. You see, we're not exactly the puffy white sheep in the children's book, are we? Just sort of silly and distracted and wandering hither and yon with goofy smiles on our faces. No, we're the kind of sheep who by our sin are constantly biting the good shepherd's hand that feeds us and kicking with our hind legs against him and pushing over the fences that he's put in place for our own good and bloodying other sheep with our selfishness. That's what the Bible says about us. We are sinners and sin is ugly. And so you think about the sheep who kicks against his master and bites his master. And that's a picture of our sin. That's a picture of me and of you. We're not the soft, cuddly variety of sheep. We're the biting, kicking, selfish, ungrateful kind. And you put yourself in the position of the shepherd with a sheep like that. What will he do with such a sheep? Will he allow it to keep living? Will his patience last forever? Will he allow it to keep biting his hand and kicking over his fences and damaging the other sheep? Or will he put it to death? And what will our shepherd do with human beings whose biting and kicking and bucking and hurting other people is far more serious than that of any sheep because we are made in the image of God and we know better? The wages of sin is death, is it not? Sheep who bite the hand of their master don't live. The wages of sin is death. Either we die ourselves under the just, righteous wrath of God, or God provides a substitute to die in our place, absorbing the punishment that we deserve. And this, of course, is one of the chief reasons Jesus came, isn't it? To be our substitute. Jesus, our good shepherd, not only laid down his life to render the devil powerless, But far more importantly, he laid down his life to absorb the just wrath of God that we wandering sheep so richly deserve. So that we may live and not die. And so that someday we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's no other way to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, is there? We cannot reach God's courts with the mud and feces of sin still hanging from our wool, can we? We must be washed in the blood of Christ. And we certainly can't enter God's heaven with His just and righteous death sentence still hanging over our heads. Our guilt must be taken away and God's wrath must be appeased. And for every last one of God's sheep, for every single person who believes on Jesus' name, that wrath has been appeased. That guilt has been removed because the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. Isaiah put it famously like this. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Did you hear it? Not only did the good shepherd lay down his life for his sheep, bearing shame and scoffing rude and in our place condemned he stood. Not only that, but in order to do it, he laid down his life like a sacrificial lamb on God's altar. That's how much the good shepherd loves his sheep, that he would become a lamb for them, that he would become one of them and lay down his life for them as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I just ask you this morning to be sure, children, be sure, adults, be sure that you know this shepherd lamb. You must know him as the second before you can know him as the first. You must know him as the lamb of God who takes away your sins before you can know him as the good shepherd who guides and comforts and feeds your soul. You must, in other words, come out from under the Lord's wrath before you can be led by the Lord's staff and rod, before you can be sure of His comfort, before you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So repent of your sins this morning, every one of you, myself included, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, repent of your sins and give yourself in faith to this shepherd turned lamb, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of glory, the favorite of heaven, who took on flesh and dwelt among us wild, rabid, rebel sheep and shed his own blood for our souls. And then, having been washed as white as wool and having been tamed by his great love, follow him right at his heels like a sheep with its master all of your days. This Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd.